Welcome again to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. Matt, we good on seats? Everybody, everybody good? Y'all need? Come on. Give it up for these two who are finding a seat right now. Yeah, way to go. Um, so uh, this morning we wrap up our time in the book of Genesis. Um, we've been studying the first 11 or so chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, and what we just read from the book of Hebrews is a New Testament book that refers back to many of the stories that we've looked at so far. Uh, but it talks to us about this man named Abraham. That's who we're going to be diving into today. Um, because what happens in our section of scripture today um, is that th- there's kind of a fulcrum turn. There- there's a hinge turning that the way that the world has been in in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, something is about to shift. That the way that God is going to move in the world, the way that God's plan in the world begins to unfold, takes a massive turn in our section of scripture today, and it deals with this man named Abraham. So if you haven't been with us, uh, or you haven't been paying attention, uh, we've been looking at these epic stories from the book of Genesis, the, the creation of the world. God sings the world with a poem and a song into existence. And God made the world for beauty. He made the world in beauty. And then he makes man and woman in his image to reflect his beauty that they might actually be fruitful and multiply and take God's beauty to the ends of the earth. And that is the plan until his image bearers decided to rebel against their maker and in their rebellion in Genesis chapter three, they shatter the shalom, they, they destroy the, the, the delight that was there and they introduce into the cosmos sin and shame and death and it wrecks this beautiful creation that God had made. But in the fallout of the Genesis uh, story of the fall, in the, in, the, in the carnage of that wreckage, there's a promise made by the maker in Genesis chapter three, where God says, I know that you've shattered this, but I'm going to make this all right again. And so then the story continues and we look at Cain and Abel and then the ark and the flood and the rainbow and then the tower of Babel. And you can maybe have this echo of a promise of Genesis chapter three that says God's going to make it all right one day through the seed of the woman, this one seed of Eve who will come to restore what was lost in Eden. But then you read the stories and you go, this is a train wreck. Like this is not going well. This is not going. How can you be working to restore the world, God, if it's this bad. We've seen murder, we've seen floods, we've had Babel and towers and narcissism and arrogance, and it's not good. Nothing seems to be working. So that what the reader is asking, if you've been following along, at the end of chapter 11, we're wondering, how is this plan gonna work, God? How are you gonna make things right in the world again, God, if nothing seems to be working so far? So we come to chapter 12, and after all the chaos outside of Eden, the Lord says, I'm about to implement my plan. I'm about to begin my plan to make the world restored to justice and beauty again. And he zooms in for us on one man and one man's family to be. The narrative of the Bible, literally on the page turn to Genesis 12, when you start reading Genesis 12, the the narrative of the Bible slows way down We've covered like tens of thousands of years in 11 chapters. And then we're zooming in on one man and the story of this man's family. Well, literally, this is not an over-exaggeration. The story of this man's family, Abraham, will carry the biblical story forward till the end of the Bible. Like following this man and his family is what the whole rest of the Bible is about. This family is the means by which God intends to restore the world. And so the reader who's been reading about the carnage and the wreckage of Genesis 1 through 11 and the fallout of that is dying to know how's this plan going to go. And then God slows the reader down and says, through this man's family. So watch and wait. 
and read. So Genesis 12, starting in verse one, second half of Genesis 11 is a genealogy that gets us from Noah's family to Abraham, Abraham's father, Terah. And then we read about Abram, who is Abraham. Chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I to the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Abram, or as an Orthodox Jew would say, Abram, father Abram, had many sons. And many sons had father Abram. It's a little VBS shout out for you. The man who will go on to become the patriarch of the world's three largest religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all look to this man as their patriarch. Literally billions of people find their spiritual roots in this man and this man's story. If you want to grasp world history, if you want to grasp civilizations and the movement of power and religion and civilization and rising and falling and how culture shifts, it literally all can be traced back to the story of this man. So if we want to understand those things, we might need to know what the Bible has to say about him. This is where his story begins. In fact, in the scriptural account of this man, his story goes from Genesis 12 to around Genesis 26, about 14 or 15 chapters. But it's not just these chapters that we hear about him. We end up, we don't ever stop hearing about him. We always get referred back to Abraham for the rest of the Bible. The New Testament gives Abraham a ton of airtime. So after Jesus, Moses, and David... Abraham has the most airtime in scripture, but really Jesus, Moses, and David all come from this man's family line. And so if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand religion in the world, if you want to understand spirituality and its roots, literally it begins with this man. So who is he? Well, for no apparent reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, of all the people in the world that have now been scattered for the many generations after the Tower of Babel, the Lord comes to Abraham, Abram, who lived in the land of Ur. Ur is on the far east side of the Near East. It's kind of over near Babylon. Abram and his family had traveled to Haran, which was also kind of in kind of northwest, uh, the northwest corner of the, of the ancient Near East. And his family has settled at Haran. And for no apparent reason, this pagan moon worshiping man, because that's what you worshiped in Ur of the Chaldeans. They were known for their moon worship. God comes to this pagan moon worshiper, someone who doesn't even believe in God yet. He comes to him and says, you, 
You and your family is how I'm going to redeem and restore and bless the world. And what we just read, according to the Bible, is the first step in God's redemptive plan for the world. This is how God is going to restore what was lost in Eden. This is how God is going to redeem what was broken in Eden by using this man and his family. All that was lost in Eden and all the introduction of humanity's sin and shame and death, all of the longing that we've all had since Eden to be restored to God's presence like it was in Eden begins right here with this man. There's a lot going on in the first few verses of Genesis 12. Again, the page is turning, the fulcrum is turning. Things are shifting to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's got this master plan to redeem the cosmos and to restore justice and beauty to the world. That's what he's always been about since Genesis 1, but now it's been wrecked. How's it gonna be made right? Through this man and his family. So let's pay attention. This is how the Lord calls Abraham in verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, if you grew up in church, you know, or you've heard maybe that that's the call of Abram. This is a famous line. But if you're an ancient Near East person, if you're an original reader of this text, like the ancient Jews were in the wilderness when they first got this text, if you're hearing this story for the first time, any ancient Near East person would say, this is insane. Because it's hard to describe for us in the modern West, the lonely abyss and the infinite mystery that Abraham was just called into by God in verse one. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. This is insane. That literally Abraham is called to leave everything. The first step he's called to leave is his country. Now he was nomadic in, in, in some sense of the word, but they had settled in Haran. So the place where Abram had settled, the place where he was going to raise his family, the place where his family was raising all of their kids, this country, this area, that land that has now become your home, the Lord says, I want you to leave that place. Leave the physical place that you're familiar with. Leave the town that you know so well. Leave the place where you know the street names and all the cut throughs and the shortcuts. Go from your place that is called your home and leave it. Okay, if that weren't hard enough, then it gets harder. You don't only have to leave your place, which is also where your economic stability would have been because land would have been economic stability. Leave your place, leave your land, and then leave your kindred. Leave the family that helped raise you. Leave your cousins and your aunts and uncles. Leave your immediate community, the people that love you, that have been around since you were a baby, that know you better than anybody, that know your middle name. Leave those people as you're leaving your economic security and your stability. Leave every body you've ever known. Okay? And then it gets worse. And worst of all, leave your father's house. It's tough to it's tough to articulate the weight of that last part of the, of the leaving call for Abram. Your beloved aging father, who we learned Terah, Abraham's dad, is in his old age in the chapter before he's dying. Leave him. You're supposed to take over his legacy, Abraham. You're supposed to provide him an heir. You're supposed to do the firstborn son thing to do and give him a legacy that when he dies, he knows his family line will continue because that's what he did for his father. And you're supposed to take his trade over. You're supposed to take over the job that he did and you're supposed to carry that on for the next generation to give honor um, and stability to the family line and the family system that you come from. When you leave your father, Abraham, in a severely patriarchal society, which the ancient Near East was, still is in many ways, when you leave him, you are spitting on him and his entire bloodline. 
You're saying to the father, I don't care about your legacy. And you could not say something more offensive to a father. I want nothing to do with you. I'm leaving you. I know you've worked your whole life to set me up for the next generation. I know I'm supposed to bring honor to you and your family and our family's name, but I'm leaving my country. I'm leaving my land. I'm leaving my community and I'm leaving you. Land, relatives, and father. Any ancient Near East scholar and historian would tell you that those three things constituted the entirety of one's social, economic, and relational life. In no uncertain terms, in this first verse of the call of Abraham, Abraham is called to leave his past and his future behind. Leave it all. And leave your very identity behind. You're not even going to know who you are. Because you don't have anything. This was a culture and this was a time where one's identity came from their family relationships. That's who you are. That's your security. That's your retirement. That's your legacy. And Abraham is literally called to leave all of it. Oh, and by the way, and trust in this God who you've never met before. And then it gets worse. Because God not only says to him, I want you to leave your past and your future. I want you to leave your security, leave your identity but look at how the Lord puts before him the destination of where he's supposed to go. Look at the end of verse one. At the end of verse one, go to the land that I will show you. I'm sorry, where was that exactly? Like where, where are you wanting me to head towards? Is that Northeast, South or West, God? <laughs> to the land that I will show you, meaning the destination of Abraham's journey is not even given to him beforehand. I want you to leave everything you've known, leave your entire identity and your security and your stability, leave everything you know and love. Where are we going? Not telling you yet. He must continue the journey until the Lord stops him and says, we're here now. This is the place that I'm stopping you. It's like when you're driving on the road trip with kids in the back seat. it's like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's like, we get there when we get there. Like we will, I will tell you when we're there, just stop, please. Confession. Just, it's just, it's like, but that's, that's the, that's the thing. It's like the, everybody wants to know where we're going. Abraham's not given that. I was talking about this with Joseph, our worship leader this week. We plan this service every week and we were talking about this insanity what Abraham's called to leave, his security, his identity, his past, his future, his legacy, everything he knows. And he's being asked to go where he doesn't know where he's going. This would be the equivalent, Joseph said, if the Lord showed up to you, knocked on the door and said, hey, um, I want you to get on this spaceship that's outside. And even if you can get your like Elon Musk hat on and want to get on a spaceship, you can go, okay, all right, where are we going? What planet are we going to? He would say, not telling you yet. You'll know when we get there. You'll know the interstellar planet when we get there. Like you'll, you'll find out when we arrive. This is insane. Like literally spaceship talk for Abraham. What are you talking about God who I've never met? You want me to get on this spaceship and go where? And you're not telling me? Which is why, if you skip ahead to verse four, it's probably the most shocking line of all the tales of Genesis one through 11 so far. Look at how verse four starts. So Abram went. W-T-H. Why did he go? He goes. Abraham puts on his sandals and he gets on the spaceship. Okay, Lord, I'll go with you. What would it take for you to do that? What would it take for you to literally get on the spaceship and go? Well, Abraham is 
given something. He's been asked to follow this unknown God into this mysterious, lonely abyss to follow him wherever the Lord says you're supposed to follow him to. And he goes, but he's given something in the in-between verses two through three. Between the call and the leaving, the calling and the going, he's given something and somehow what he's given allows him to go, frees him to go. Verse two through three. It's what the Lord says to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so Abraham is given a bunch of blessings. And you might hear that and you might go, man, that's awesome. It's like the Lord tells him like, hey, you won the lottery, come with me. The problem with that is these, enor- these enormous blessings, and please don't hear me wrong. These are enormous, especially for the ancient Near East person that Abraham was, these would have meant the equivalent of winning the jackpot. Like this would have been incredible for him to hear that these blessings were his. I'm gonna give you a family, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make a nation from you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to make your name great. And oh, by the way, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your family. I'm going to give you blessings that you can't fathom right now, Abraham. I know you don't have any children right now. I know I'm asking you to leave your homeland. I know you don't have a homeland. I'm going to give you a new homeland. I know you don't have a family. I'm going to give you a family. I know you don't have a future right now. I'm going to give you a future. I'm so going to bless you and shower you with my abundance. I'm going to give you land, give you a name, give you a nation, give you an inheritance, give you a legacy. That sounds awesome. There's just one problem with it. If you can kind of get into old Abe's sandals for a minute. All those blessings sound great, but they're all in the future. They aren't real yet. They don't exist yet. They aren't tangible blessings yet. All the promises given to Abraham, they just exist out there, like in the future. God doesn't come to him and and drop a bunch of money or drop a bunch of things on him and say, see how good I am? Now you can trust me, come with me. He just says, hey, I want you to trust me. All this stuff is coming to you. But none of it is made. It's not like Aladdin and the genie where he gets immediate results for his hopes. These promises from God only exist in Abraham's future. So all that Abraham can do in following the Lord in his call is hope that this unknown, unnamed God to Abraham is actually telling the truth. Promises, especially promises of this magnitude, promises that like mean something for our soul, they can almost never be fully proven to us in the present tense. Promises like this can only be walked into and trusted. Like on wedding day, when you look at your spouse and you say, I will never abandon you till death do us part. You can't prove that by the end of the reception. The only way to prove that is by living a life of never abandoning them. Until you've lived a full life of never forsaking them, of always choosing them, of never leaving them, that's when the promise made on wedding day becomes realized. Oh, you were telling the truth. You actually did mean what you said you meant on wedding day. These promises for Abraham only become realized by Abraham as he goes and as he walks into them. And that is terrifying. 
it's terrifying because in order for Abraham to, okay, remember what he's being asked to leave to an unknown destination with the hope of these promises that could be true, but he doesn't really know this God yet. I hope you're telling the truth. If he's going to take the first step, he has to give up an inordinate amount of control. He's given no control and no certainty. No details are given to him of how this is going to go down. He doesn't know what the road ahead looks like. He doesn't even know which direction to start walking. He cannot see over the horizon of his future and say, oh yeah, I see that, I see that I'm, I'm kind of guaranteed these things and here's how it's all going to work out. The Lord doesn't come to him with his master plan of restoring the world and say, hey, I'm asking you to trust me, but let me pull you aside and show you how the next couple of millennia are going to go so you can know that I'm telling the truth. He doesn't give him any of that. Abraham cannot see the horizon over the horizon of his path ahead. He does not know how this will go. He has zero certainty, which means if he's going to walk, he's giving up his certainty, which means he's giving up his control. And man, we love control, don't we? Read this week in an article that 80% of all statistics are made up. No, I'm kidding. That 80%, 80% of the close elevator door buttons on New York City elevators don't work. Now, either they were never wired to work in the first place or after they broke, they were never fixed because who cares if they work? That's the point of the article. It doesn't really matter if the closed door elevator buttons work or not because in the time it takes for the elevator rider to realize that they want the door to close and it doesn't seem to be closing as quickly as we want it to, by the time the the second and a half that it takes... And then for someone to find the closed door button and then push it repeatedly, like pushing it 27 times is going to make it close faster. Um, The operating system, the brain of the elevator has already started to close the doors. The control system has already begun to close the doors automatically, regardless of how many times you press it. And so why do we press it? Because we feel like for a moment, I've got a little control. I just need a win. Like something worked the way I want it to work, please. Yes, the store closed. I'm the man. God, I need a win and closing that door. It did what I told it to do. You know, yes. They're called placebo buttons. Literally, we love control so much. We love pressing buttons that don't work. Because control gives us a sense of power. And power gives us a sense of security. And security gives us a sense of being protected. And so if I can see what's coming around the corner and I can control what's coming around my corner and if I can control my circumstances and I can write the script on how my life goes, if I can do all that and control it, guess what that'll mean? I won't experience the pain I'm terrified of experiencing. So let me control everything. And then when I control everything, life will go the way that I want it to go. And then when it doesn't go that way, I feel like, oh my gosh, it's because I lost control. I can never lose control again because if I lose control, that can mean pain for me. So we try to control everything. Our kids, our days, our conversations, our body image, our resumes, our reputation, Closed door button on all those. Make sure my kids turn out the way that I need them to. Make sure people think about me the way that I need them to. Make sure I don't waste a friggin' second any day so that I can control my day and it goes the way that I want it to go. I'm just shattering that button that doesn't actually do anything. Control, 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 control. 
And as normal and as human as that is, faith is literally the antithesis of control. Faith refuses to try and control everything and dares to believe that in order to be whole and healed, I don't have to control the narrative and I don't have to control my life. Faith doesn't demand certainty. And faith is okay with mystery. Faith is a loosening of the grip, this death grip we have, this demand that we have that everything be in our control. Faith says, I'm not going to demand that things go the way that I have to have them go. I can't control it anyway. I'm guaranteed no certainty anyway. Think, think about Abram's experience once he leaves. He gets on the spaceship. He gets on this insane spaceship. To leave. It's, not, it's not like he's told like, hey, go check this out for a couple years and then you can always come back home. Like go get your road trip jitters out of you and then you can come back home. Mom and dad will always be here. That's not what he's doing. He is leaving everything. He leaves and he walks and he goes in faith. But get, get his sandals on for a minute and imagine in your minds what this was like. He's loosed his grip on his control and he starts walking to a land that he doesn't even have a compass to get to and he doesn't even know when he's gonna get there. So here's my question for you. When do you think his doubt started? Most scholars think that it took Abraham about 18 months to get from Haran down to the land of Canaan to the place where the Lord says, stop. But then we read it in our text. When he gets there, he said, it, the text tells us, but the Canaanites were there. Like he gets there and the Lord says, here's your land. And he's like, uh, but who are all these people? <laughs> well, it's their land. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess I'll just sit here for a while with a tent then. That's what it says. And then, okay, so giving him land and a nation and a, and a place was, was one of the promised blessings of the Lord. But he gets to the land and it's not even his yet. And then the other massive piece, like the most massive piece about any of God's blessings coming true for Abraham require that he has kids. He has no kids. His wife is barren. Sarah, we're told at the end of chapter 11, cannot have children. And so he's been promised descendants. He's been promised a legacy. He's been, he's been promised an entire nation. He's been promised that his line will bless the whole world and he has no children. If you read on the rest of Abraham's story, guess how long it took for Abraham to be promised you will have kids to the day when Sarah finally got pregnant. Sarah was, Abraham was 75 when he gets the promise. Guess how old he is when Sarah gets pregnant? 100. 25 years he has to wait. So how do you think he's doing? Like, how do you think that goes for him? When he's been promised all these blessings, you're gonna bless my family, you're gonna give me land and descendants. I'm in the land, it's not my land. And now I'm promised descendants and my wife can't even get pregnant for 25 years. When he reads the circumstances of his life and then he compares them to the blessings that God has promised to give him, how do you think he weighs those things? How do you think he's feeling about his decision to give up control? He's got no clarity on the promises. He's got no plan for which he knows this is how it's going to happen. He's got nothing to go on except the promises of this God that he's never met. And then th this, is, this is infuriating. Because if you want to live into his experience, here's what Abraham is being forced to reckon with. God promised to bless him. 
And then he walks and he goes by faith to trust this word of this Lord that he's never met. And then nothing about his life would ever make him think that he's being blessed. But the Lord says, but I'm blessing you. I'm at work. I'm blessing you. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know it doesn't feel like it. I am working out your own healing and wholeness. I'm working out the healing and wholeness of the world and nothing about your circumstances are gonna convince you that my promises are true. The Lord was blessing Abraham and working out the promises and the blessings that he had made to him and nothing about Abraham's life made it feel like God was a truth teller. So I don't know the details of your life. No, some of them, but is it possible that in the Lord's promise to bless you, in the Lord's promise to be good to you, he has ordained things in your life. We just sang it, sweet comfort. Whatever my God ordains is right. Have we, have we, is it possible that the things that you're walking through, they are for your ultimate good and they are for your blessing and they are for your healing, but nothing about walking through them makes it feel that way. They're actually part of God healing you, part of God liberating you, part of God restoring you. But if you just look at the circumstances, it would never appear that that's what God might be doing in your life. That's why faith is terrifying. That's why faith is hard. And no sentence of this story or no sentence from the the text known as the Bible would ever tell you that when you walk by faith, you will not experience excruciating seasons. But here's what the Bible will tell you about the life of faith and the life of mystery and the life of having no certainty. The life of faith is one that believes that the Lord is holding on to you even when you can't hold on to him. That's what it means to live by faith. I'm trusting that even though nothing about my life makes me want to trust you, I'm trusting you've still got me. That's faith. Romans chapter four, which we will read a portion of in a little bit. It will talk, it's a whole chapter about Abraham's faith, Romans four. And it says this line that has always been mysterious to me. It says, in faith, Abraham hoped against hope. And in his hoping against hope, meaning like he had this shred of hope about his life in Haran. It's not going well. He's 75 and his wife is barren and he's not doing his sonly duties to give his father a legacy. He's got a shred of hope about his own life. But then this God comes to him with a new hope. And so he hopes against his failing hope. And in his hoping against hope, here's what he believes, that God could call into existence things that did not exist. Now, you can read that and go, God's a magician. He can make things poof out. That's not what it's talking about. God is a magician, but that's not what it's talking about. Here's what it means. It means, do you know what that experience is like? To have to dare to believe that God can call things into existence that don't currently exist. Do you know the mystery of that? Do you know the pain of that? That means that the things that you long for in your life, that there maybe is no evidence that they, even, that they exist in your life right now, healed relationships, restored sense of self, hope and healing and joy and beauty. You might have nothing in your life that tells you that those things exist for you. But you have a God who can call into existence things that don't exist. Beyond what you can see, beyond your five senses, God is a God who can do something that calls into existence things that don't currently exist. So Abraham walks into the vast unknown and mystery and he dares to believe that something could exist that didn't exist when he started walking. 
that everything about your life circumstance might make it seem like God's not doing what he said he would do for you. God's a liar. Your doubt is high and your hope is thin. And here's what faith says to that place. But I believe that father, you hold me even when I can't or don't want to hold on to you. That's faith. And actually this paradigm of faith that God can call into existence things that don't exist and I'm going to choose to believe that God actually comes through on his promises. That paradigm is how the promises of this text come to us. Listen in the passage again. We're gonna reread the blessings given to Abraham. I want you to listen for this. Who in the passage is the one that says they're going to make sure that these promises happen? Who's carrying the load? Who's carrying the burden of making sure that these blessings actually end up happening? Verse one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who's the prime mover? I will, 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 I will. Who's it up to? to see to it that these promises and these blessings actually happen to Abraham and his family. Who does it depend on? It's not Abraham's faith that makes the promises happen. It's the Lord's willingness and the Lord's desire to see these promises get carried out that makes these promises get carried out. Do you know that it's not your faith's job to heal you? Do you know that it's not your faith's job to make God want to carry you? Do you know that God is not waiting or relying on your faith before he acts towards you in kindness? The Lord's dealing with you in kindness has nothing to do with the amount that you trust him or place your faith in him. The Lord's dealing with you in kindness, like Abraham, has everything to do with him. Let me make this really practical for you and me. You can't make a decision in your life that will stop God from being good to you. You can't. Because God being good to you has nothing to do with the amount of faith that you have that God would be good to you. To put it bluntly, you're not that important. Like you don't have that ability you don't have that power. Do you know what power you would have to have in you that would give you the power or the ability to make a decision that would stop God from being good to you? You would have to have the ability to stop the infinite maker God from doing what he sets out to do. You're not that good. You can't make a decision that will stop the Lord from being good to you because the Lord has said he's going to be good to you and you don't get to change his mind. So the only certainty of faith is the certainty that God is a God who keeps his promises. It's the only certainty you get. You have no idea what it's gonna look like. You have no idea the road you'll have to walk before you realize that the promises are true. You have no amount of control over how long it might take before any of his promises begin to have some fruition in your life. But the only certainty you have is the certainty that God is a God who keeps his promises. So why would you ever dare to believe that? 
If it all depends on the Lord and it's his will and his doing that will actually see to it that his promises to be good to us will come to fruition, why would you ever trust him or place your faith in him? Because look, Abraham, Abraham knew nothing about this God. If Abraham knew anything about this God, this is the God who thousands of years ago destroyed a world with a flood. That's all that he knows about this God. But we have a little bit more to go on. We have more than Abraham had when we're given the invitation to place our faith in this maker God, this covenant keeping God. We have a little bit more evidence that would convince us he's worth being trusted in. Years later from Abraham, thousands of years later in the New Testament, the apostle Paul will write to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter three and he will tell us that when God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through his offspring, that's this passage, the writer of Galatians, Paul says, hey, let me do a little grammar study for you, reader. If you know the Old Testament story, Abraham was promised that his, his offspring would bless the whole world. But let me teach you some grammar about Genesis 12. The offspring word there is singular, not plural. That when God promises to Abraham, I have an offspring, an offspring from your line is going to bless the whole world. The offspring word there in the ancient Hebrew is singular, not plural, which is the mind blowing moment where you realize that when God promises to Abraham that one of his offspring will bless the whole world, when God comes to Abraham, he started talking about Jesus. Who could come to be a blessing to the whole world? Who could call, cause all the people of the world, every tongue, tribe, nation, and people to be blessed by God? Who could come from Abraham's line to perform such a task? If you flip your Bibles to Matthew chapter one, the opening sentence of the New Testament, the very first words of the New Testament are, these are the genealogies of Jesus, son of Abraham. Jesus is the singular seed of Abraham. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the one who came from Abraham's line to bless the whole world. And when you see that God came true on his promise to send one offspring, one singular offspring through Abraham's line, you begin to believe maybe God does keep his promises that thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up, the almighty God was promising to do something. Abraham didn't know Jesus' name or face, but he was promised that one of his seed, one of his offspring would bless the whole world. And so that gives the Christian greater confidence than even Abraham had that maybe the God of the Bible is not a liar. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Jesus is the one who left his country and his homeland. Jesus is the one who left his father's house, just like Abraham. Jesus left all he had known and held dear to follow the command to go where the father was leading him. Except when Jesus left his father's house and Jesus left his homeland to come, he didn't leave it to get blessing. Jesus left it to be cursed. That's the work that Jesus came to do and that's the work by which Jesus is able to bless the whole world because Jesus actually came to become a curse for us. 
It's what Galatians 3 will go on to say about Jesus, that in order for the promises to Abraham to come to the world, we needed one who would come and bear the curse that the world deserved. And when Jesus, the son of Abraham, bears the curse that the world deserves, he can then turn to the world and bless the world and not curse them. Jesus became a curse. Jesus bore the curse that our sin deserves Jesus was abandoned because that's what we deserved, but Jesus bore the curse that we deserve in order to give us the blessings that he deserves. And so if you're in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then God is covenantally and eternally bound to always be good to you. And when you begin to connect the dots and see that because God promised to Abraham thousands of years before that one of his singular offspring would come and do this work, And then we see you are a trustworthy God. You are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. You have never not once failed on your promises. Even if they haven't all come true yet, I'm believing that you keep your word, Jesus. That's the only way we would ever let go of our control. That's the only way we would ever walk in faith to the God who says, trust me and go into lands, go into places that don't make any sense. And I know that your circumstances will not convince you that I'm good, but because of Jesus, will you trust me that I'm good? Because I sent to you, Jesus, will you trust that I do have good for you? Even when it's excruciating, even when the road ahead doesn't make sense, even when the, the tempest that you are currently trying to stay afloat in seems to be drowning you, would you dare to believe that God is a God, he's a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and he only has good for you? Let's pray. Jesus, by faith, we come to you um, what shred of faith we have. Sometimes it's scary to believe that you would, you're asking us to trust you. You're asking us to get on this spaceship of faith and go and, and follow you wherever you lead. To love our families, to love our communities, to love our city, to love our neighbor, to love our kids, to love our spouse. It's hard, Jesus, and the pain and the loss and the tragedy and the heartache and the addiction and the, and the broken relationships really make it seem like you have forgotten your promise to be good to us. And so when our circumstances tell us that you are not good, would you help us, like Abraham, to place just a shred of hope in you, a shred of faith in you that even when we don't know how to hold on to you, you have not let go of us. Guide us now as we close in song. We pray Jesus in your name. Amen.